About Empathy is a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. We are now in our third season. Thank you for listening. Week by week, we hope these engaging conversations inspire you to have empathic and compassionate interactions. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Irene Ying. And I'm Dr. Dori Sekaracha. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. This podcast gives voice to the patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experience. By reflecting on their stories, we hope to improve our practice and yours. Over the last year, the impact of systemic racism in healthcare has come into sharper focus. From racialized populations being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to the cruel and senseless death of Joyce Echaquan in Quebec, it is more important than ever to look inwards at our own racial biases and at the widespread inequity that exists in the healthcare system. Today, we are talking with Dr. Lisa Richardson. She is the Strategic Lead in Indigenous Health at Women's College Hospital and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Richardson is also the Vice Chair, Culture and Inclusion at the Department of Medicine. She is working to advance inclusion, equity, and wellness through her work with students, faculty, and staff across U of T. Welcome to About Empathy. Thank you. Lisa, when you first heard about the story of Joyce Echaquan, the young Atikamek mother from Quebec who was the victim of racist taunts and neglect before she dies, what went through your mind? Profound sadness, I think, as we all felt. Profound grief that any human being would feel Mm. and then heightened because of a sense of connection and connectedness that as Indigenous peoples, we all feel with our community. We have an expression called for all my relations, Mm. which really is about the connectedness that we all have with one another as Indigenous peoples, but as non-Indigenous peoples too, and including our connection to the land that we're on and you know, non-human beings as Mm -hmm. well, the plant world. And so it's a beautiful expression, but I think it comes to mind when you ask me about that because it helps understand the collective grief that I think we felt as Indigenous peoples in hearing about the death of Joyce. Mm -hmm. And also, sadly, it's familiar because we all hear about these stories or have family members who've had terrible experiences in the healthcare system. And so a real sadness about that, too. Yeah, it's an all too common story. And it seems like it comes up periodically in the media. I think it comes to our attention in the media. But I think our sense would be that it happens much, much more frequently than that. Yeah, I have at least a community member once per week come to me in the Toronto area with a poor experience that they've had, some leading to terrible outcomes, some leading to, you know, trauma and emotional distress, it is common. Lisa, do you think you could help us understand as healthcare providers how to examine ourselves for racial bias? I think if you asked any one of us, we wouldn't think we had any. But obviously, this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't there. Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And I do always say to people, it's an ongoing journey. It is a constant act of close self-examination. We would use the word praxis, which is sort of theory in practice. So as you're engaging in your clinical work 
or in your encounters with colleagues or with learners, if you're an educator, always thinking, is there a way in which I may be treating this person differently? You know, we all hope that our family members, if they were receiving care, would be receiving the highest quality care possible. So asking yourself, Am I treating this person the way I would want my own loved one to be treated? I always recommend starting with some of the assessment tools that you can use, like the implicit bias test, Mm -hmm. the implicit association test, which you can do on a website and determine Mm -hmm. actually what Mm -hmm. your own biases are. I mean, it's amazing that we all carry these biases because we live in a society where there are certain norms. And even if we feel we've been in a family or we've grown up perhaps from a with lived experience as being structurally marginalized, we can still actually learn these biases like pro-white man heteronormative Mm -hmm. bias because of the world in which we live. And so to do those tests and get a sense of what your biases are and then to be constantly aware and checking them. And I say it's not a single test Mm. that you would do. It is an ongoing journey and that it's good to repeat and to actually constantly learn and challenge yourself. So that is helpful in caring for anyone, Mm. I think, but especially important, obviously, when we're thinking about the case of Joyce Achaquan, for example. Thank you. I think that's such an important thing we can remember and we can bring to our learners, you know, as trying to be good mentors and Mm -hmm. do that together with them. Yeah. And we can also role model that, right? right? Exactly. So I think that's really, really important. Important, There's a one-on-one aspect to this. And then there's the larger systems aspect to this, which is, I would imagine, much, much harder to tackle and something that will take a long time. So when you think about tackling anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Black racism at a systemic level, what do you see as, you know, what needs to happen and what's the work that needs to be done there? I would link it with the previous question because actually what the point of that work around becoming awakened to your own bias and understanding how it plays out for anti-racist healthcare practice, Mm -hmm. the key is that you see how these stereotypes and biases are playing out and then you act actually to change structures and systems. And so what does that kind of system level change look like? Mm -hmm. It means increasing the number of Indigenous and Black care providers because we have good research Mm -hmm. from the U.S. in particular to show that when you have congruence between care providers, the patient's experience is better. Mm -hmm. In certain cases, the health outcomes, Mm -hmm. for example, the recent study around maternal care in the U.S. with Black mothers and providers showing better outcomes. So we need to increase the number of Black and Indigenous Mm -hmm. physicians, We need to see representation of Black and Indigenous peoples across the healthcare system. Mm. So in leadership roles, in governance roles, developing policy, implementing policy, creating programs, running HR departments so that we can actually, I talk about decolonizing how we hire people. And then we need robust ways to report when these experiences occur Mm. so that a patient's not scared to come forward mm-hmm. with a complaint, mm-hmm. that they can be supported for their own well-being, but they also know, as you know, anyone who's had a patient safety incident mm-hmm. will often say they want to know that this will not happen to someone mm-hmm. else, mm-hmm. that this system will be changed. And then we need broad-scale continuing education. 
across the system. So I often say it's not just, you know, the person who's providing that clinical care at the bedside. Right. When you are walking in to register in a clinic, mm. we hear about terrible experiences there. Mm -hmm. When you're having your blood work drawn, mm, right. all of these moments where you can experience microaggressions mm. or racism mm -hmm. are important to be interrupted. Lisa, you talked a lot about structural issues and sort of the current state, but obviously we know that a lot of the injustices also are the historical atrocities that were committed against Indigenous people in Canada. How do you see teaching and education around that historical piece fitting into the greater picture around the fight against anti-racism? It's really important to understand why, as an Indigenous person, even if you're entering an institution for the first time and have never had any experience in any negative experience, such as residential school or otherwise, you may be traumatized. And that is because of this history of colonization that's affected your ancestors, family, and community over generations, and we call that historical trauma. Mm. So mm. those institutions are some directly related to medicine, like the Indian hospital system, mm. which was a separate system set up to treat indigenous peoples, primarily starting with infectious diseases, where there were many bad things that happened, mm. where mm. outcomes were very poor, where, you know, the stories that emerged from there, not only about how people were treated for tuberculosis, the experimentation that occurred, the forced sterilizations that occurred mm. in those contexts, a lot of terrible things that happened within our own profession, mm -hmm. let alone how our profession also contributed to experimentation in residential schools, for mm -hmm. example. So in the same way, you know, when we talk about how Nazi physicians committed atrocities, mm -hmm. and we have to confront that and come to terms with that, our profession also contributed to this mistreatment mm. of our own peoples. That's so important to keep in mind, yeah. Yeah, mm. and then that carries forward because as an Indigenous person, as I said, you may not have had any bad experiences mm. in any of these institutions, but you have, we call yeah. it a blood memory, mm. or you have that memory of the historical trauma that's been inherited from yep. what your families or your communities have gone through. Mm. And that may play out in your experience mm. in the healthcare institution. And I'm just thinking about, for myself, what I learned in medical school. I never learned about this, this side of medicine, this history of medicine. I think as a faculty, I think we're doing better at that. It's not something that I ever learned about. So when I think about that, I think there's so much that I didn't know about the historical traumas. It makes me pause. It makes me think about this whole body of trauma that I didn't know about. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about in the truth and reconciliation movement mm. for Indigenous peoples, the calls to action, their first word in that title is truth. Mm, and right. our elders will often say, we cannot actually have true reconciliation until we understand that history and mm. are truthful and open about it. Lisa, can you give us some examples of, in medicine, of how traditional healing practices or traditional Indigenous healing practices are being perhaps married with a more traditional Western medical perspective? Do you have examples of that to share? When we talk about the structural change that's needed, the most fundamental change that needs to happen mm. is what we call self-determination. So Indigenous peoples determining what is the best way forward for Indigenous health. Mm. 
and what programs are needed. And one of the important ideas that emerged from that is that actually many, many Indigenous peoples in Canada, or the land now known as Canada, Mm. seek care from elders and traditional knowledge keepers in addition to biomedicine. Mm. Our surveys report about 50% of people will do that. Mm. And so there's an understanding that when that medical care that we would receive in a hospital or clinic based on the way we've been trained does not need to be, shouldn't be in isolation. It can coexist and be alongside some of our own ways of healing Mm -hmm. that may include practicing ceremony, smudging, meeting with a healer and having very, very powerful plant medicine, which have been passed down for you know, hundreds of years. So the knowledge of those traditional Mm. healers is very well developed. And, you know, they would train for 20 years. (laughs) We think we train for a long time. (laughs) They would apprentice for a long time. And so the way in which that's been integrated in numerous settings includes on some reserves, there's some great examples, like in Six Nations, where there's an Indigenous family doc who's working alongside a healer. Mm. Mm. a traditional knowledge keeper, an elder and healer. So a patient could actually see their family physician and then could be referred on to the healer and other way around. So they work very collaboratively. I've also been a part of a really cool initiative, which is an outreach program. It's called First Nations Inuit and Métis Wellness. And we think about the four directions of health, which is quite common in many of our nations. And so we have someone who's a physician, there's a family physician, or I was there as an internist thinking about the physical health indigenous psychiatrist. There was someone thinking about the emotional dimensions of health. So it was an indigenous social worker. And then in the spiritual dimension of health, actually an elder. Mm. And so all four of us collaborating on a care plan Mm. for a client. It's a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. I imagine the access to that needs to be increased exponentially in order for individuals to have access. I love Anishinaabe Health Toronto, which is the Aboriginal Health Access Centre. And similarly, you know, our uh, many Indigenous clients will go there and they could see a nurse practitioner or, or a family doc or a psychiatrist or whatever their needs may be, but they could also see a healer. So there are quite a few examples of that model. I would say the model tends to exist, though, in the community-based settings mm-hmm. and where right. we need to really see an extension is in our acute care and hospital Mm -hmm. settings. Because Mm -hmm. as you know, when someone is grieving or for example, in a palliative setting, Mm -hmm. to have access to that traditional knowledge and spiritual practice can be really important. And so we need to be able to have elders and knowledge keepers in those contexts too. For those of us hoping to learn more, can you give us like one or two good resources to start Mm -hmm. with if we want to learn more about how to serve our Indigenous patients? The gold standard around Indigenous cultural competency or safety is an online learning module called the Sanyas training Mm -hmm. program. It's an eight to nine hour program, but it's done and it's asynchronous and it's done over about an eight to nine week period. And Mm -hmm. you have a cohort of online learners and it's facilitated and it really supports the reflection that we were talking about earlier and also gives a lot of the history that we Mm -hmm. were talking about that is often not taught. Mm -hmm. It allows you to really go deep into that area and it's outstanding. And then we created what was called an Indigenous Health Primer for 
for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, which mm-hmm. is really for everyone. The Canadian Indigenous Nurses Association loves it. We've had huge feedback from it. It's an ebook. Probably takes about an hour to work through, but would be really, I think, baseline knowledge that great. every practitioner great. should have. Great to know. Yeah. In working towards a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive healthcare system, can you share with us any stories that make you feel hopeful? Especially during this time, I think a lot of us are feeling like there's not a lot of hope out there. Are there any stories that make you feel hopeful? You have to be hopeful. We can't afford not to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. We can't afford not to keep doing this work. Mm. I have been just so excited by watching what our Indigenous organizations have been doing here in Toronto in Mm. response to COVID. And we just had a meeting just before I came up. Larry Frost, who's the head of the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto, said, you know, the good news about this COVID is that we are all working together in such an incredible Mm. way. The highlight is definitely going out with Anishinaabe Health's mobile healing Mm. unit where we actually take the care to community. Mm. So we actually go and do COVID testing in tent sites, in Indigenous housing units at the Indigenous nursing home. And it's done in a really wraparound Mm -hmm. way. So it's not just a COVID test. It's, you know, a chiropodist, Mm -hmm. a primary care provider. That's a COVID-related initiative that will continue beyond COVID. So something positive came out of all this. Yeah. Yeah. We always finish our podcast with asking our guests to complete a statement, if only they knew. If you think about healthcare providers or professionals or learners, what do you wish they knew about providing care to Indigenous patients or providing care that is culturally safe? I find that people are scared Mm. and anxious. Mm. And I think what everyone needs to know about caring for Indigenous peoples applies to caring for others as well. Mm. And that is to be yourself to build relationship. And I think that can be done in a really short time. I don't think that's just about the people who have, you know, longitudinal clinics Mm -hmm. in primary care. I think you build a relationship as soon as you step into a room Mm -hmm. with the patient Mm -hmm. and you think about how you address them. Are you bringing empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. to that experience? Mm -hmm. Are you listening? Are you introducing yourself? Often what people want is to feel that you're a human being. Mm -hmm. So not feeling anxious, feeling like you can focus on being you, building a strong relationship, and then the therapeutic alliance Mm -hmm. and care plan flows from there. I'm curious to know when you say people are, are fearful, they're afraid, what do you think they're afraid of? I think they're afraid that they may make a mistake and offend someone. And that if you are somehow say the wrong thing, then you'll turn the patient off forever. We do have to be mindful. But I think conversely, if you're fearful, you're thinking about the patient. So you're you're likely to not <laughs> to not be doing that. It's our colleagues, or it's when we get into a space where we're actually not thinking about what the needs of the patient are and how we're presenting and how we're behaving with them, mm-hmm. that you're likely to make those really problematic and offensive statements. Whereas yeah. you focus on caring and listening and being respectful, you build the relationship that allows you to kind of overcome that fear. Dr. Lisa Richardson, thank you so much for being with us today. 
I want to thank you for all the work that you do, because mm-hmm. I think at this time, especially, I think people are looking to you as a clinician and looking to you as someone who's an expert in equity, diversity and inclusion. And I can imagine that it's a toll, I think, on you because I'm sure you're getting pulled in so many directions. So thank you for taking the time to be with us and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. And thanks for your thoughtful questions and for all that you're doing. You're listening to About Empathy. We're going to take a short break to tell you about how the show is supported, and we'll be right back. The third season of About Empathy has been funded through donations to the palliative care team via the Sunnybrook Foundation. Sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care. By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds family and patient experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives at Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. During the pandemic, all programs are available as online support groups, webinars, or as telephone-based supports via Well on the Web. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you or to access national online programming. Welcome back to About Empathy. So Dory and Irene, I think that was a really illuminating conversation with Lisa Richardson. What comes through for you as something that was impactful? Oh, there were so many things. But what really struck me as I was sitting here is when she talked about the model that she practiced in terms of the four people that were bringing care to Indigenous people. And she was there for physical and someone was there for emotional, psychological, someone social, spiritual. And I just kept thinking, that's palliative care. And it resonated so much with me and everything that we, the three of us, always try to teach and bring to our learners Mm -hmm. to approach every patient that way. And it was just very impactful to hear. And of course, specifically, that makes sense to me that that's what works to bring to every population, whether it's Indigenous, Black people, like I think it's just really important. It's good medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. It's just good medicine. And we want to bring it to everyone, not just a situation where someone needs a palliative approach to care. But I think in particular, you know, as it relates to Indigenous peoples, I think that they're bringing that model to them, I think is fantastic. I see what you mean, that it's very similar to our work. Yeah. You know, for me, I think in Lisa talking about examining your own biases and your own perceptions of race, you know, I was thinking about myself and I was thinking, honestly, it's embarrassing and it's shameful. I think before this year or before the last few years, you know, I never really considered my own racial biases, be it in my implicit bias mm-hmm. or explicit bias. It's not something I really ever thought about. I just thought I'm a good person. I believe in equity for all. And really, that's all that should matter. With everything that's happened this year, you know, I thought I need to look inward, you know, what are my biases, be they explicit or implicit, and how am I approaching the world? And it's not something I ever thought about before, to be honest, which is frankly really embarrassing. Before the last few years, I never thought about my own privilege and how that made my life easier in terms of moving through the world and and that those were barriers that I never had to overcome. And it's never really something I thought about. And so for me, that was something that I take to heart. It's something that I need to do better as a person. I think there's a reason why it's called implicit bias. Mm -hmm. 
we're not aware of it. Mm. It's so insidious. And I'm in the exact same boat as you, yeah. you know, two, three years ago, I never even thought about my own privilege. Mm -hmm. In fact, I kind of, I'm going to be completely honest. As an Asian Canadian, mm. I probably bought a little bit into the whole model minority stereotype, you know, that certain immigrants from certain countries, oh, they're more successful. Mm. I'm embarrassed to admit that now. Mm. And I see now the harm that kind of stereotype has upholding racism structurally. And so I have done the implicit bias test mm -hmm. that Dr. Richardson alluded to. It was very illuminating. So I do highly recommend people look that up and to test their their own biases. What was really helpful for me was this idea of we have to move away from this dichotomy of racist, not racist, mm. right? Like that's not a helpful narrative to try to promote. We have to talk about instead of racist, not racist, it's we all have biases. Where are they and how are they affecting the care that we're providing mm. for our patients? I think that's how we should be framing things. Because unfortunately, I still have conversations to this day with colleagues around implicit bias, around racism. And very commonly, the response I get is, oh, yes, that is a big problem, but it's not my problem mm -hmm. because I'm not racist because they view someone who's racist as this evil person. Mm -hmm. So that's not helpful, I think, to have those labels. I'm definitely in the same boat with both of you. And until I did that test, like you're talking about, Irene, I mean, I went to medical school 35 years ago, and we did not talk about any of this. And like you mentioned, Yvonne, I think I'm a good person. Mm. I try my best with every patient. I feel like I bring the same person. But, you know, unless you're conscious about mm -hmm. thinking about this and examining yourself, it's impossible to be unbiased at times, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. You have to be aware of it. And I think the fact that we're having this conversation is so healthy and that this is something we can all be hopefully good mentors and bring this forward and it gets better because the more we understand, I think the better we get, or at least I'm very hopeful about that. Yeah, and I think Lisa spoke to that. She spoke Absolutely. about truth. So an awareness yes. and also a personal awareness of constantly examining yeah. how am I interacting with this person? Am I interacting with this person in a way where I am treating yeah. them in an equitable way as compared to others, right? So I think it's constant. And I think it speaks to what Irene was saying about it's not like a label, you are racist or not racist. It's constantly examining that in the moment every day to make sure that you're on the, yes. the side of actually being anti-racist. I've been reading this year a lot of books about anti-racism mm -hmm. and I think being actively anti-racist from my understanding and my learning about it and it's very new is that to be anti-racist is to be actively anti-racist in that way. So it's about in your interactions with people, but also with dismantling systemic racism right. and policies that are racist in nature. So it's it's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's yeah. an internal work, but then it's larger work that needs to be done at a systems level. And so for me, I feel like I'm just getting started and I'm just getting to that place where I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I need to be in a place of being humble because I don't know, mm -hmm. but I need to know and I need to learn and I need to see how I could be of help. Yeah. My husband is white mm -hmm. and he's been trying to do a lot of learning recently too. You know, he said the other day, it's exhausting. It's exhausting trying to think about how you can be an ally, be anti-racist. But you know what's more exhausting? Having to live yes. through racism every single day. Yes. Right. right. So if you think, oh, it's so much work to do, mm. think about how much work it is to live that life where mm -hmm. you are subject to racism at a macro and micro level every single day. All right. It's nothing. Yeah. It's a drop in the bucket compared mm -hmm. to that. 
for people like Lisa, who are leaders in EDI or equity, diversity, and inclusion, Mm -hmm. the exhaustion I think that leaders like her would feel Mm -hmm. in terms of the demands on their time and being pulled in so many directions and so many people wanting her expertise and looking to her to help solve this um, when it shouldn't land squarely only on her shoulders Mm -hmm. or on other shoulders. It actually needs to be more communal work across the community, not just those who are in leadership positions like her. Mm -hmm. Well, and hopefully, like she said, it's important to have more people come into healthcare from different communities. And so hopefully that burden will get shared more, the more inclusive we are and who we get into medical school, nursing school, social work, et cetera. I think that will hopefully be helpful. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully that'll lead to less disparities because there are so many disparities. I think a lot of our data is from the United States in terms of disparities around Black people seeking care in the medical system, Mm -hmm. for example. So hopefully that'll lead to better outcomes because ultimately I think that's what we all want for people. I really enjoyed our conversation with Lisa and I think we learned so much and I think we're just getting started with our learning about this. Definitely. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. The episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner, with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by the Sunnybrook Foundation at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.